Hey listeners, Harry here with another episode of Air Power and International Security. In today's show, we have Professor Mark Galliotti talking about how Russian forces have been fighting in Ukraine, which is of course the topic on everyone's lips at the moment. So far on this show, we've had plenty of episodes exploring the context of this conflict, as well as how things like air power and cyber operations have been employed so far. And we've had some fantastic guests providing some truly expert analysis. Today is no different. Throughout this conflict, Professor Galliotti has been one of the most valuable sources on the Russian political and military situations that have been shaping this war. Mark has published an incredible amount of books on Russia's political system under Putin and the wars that both the Soviets and the Russians have fought. He's also been a regular commentator in British newspapers, giving us plenty of insights into the ongoing war. And I should also say that he has his own podcast, which if you haven't already come across, you should definitely go and check it out. It's called In Moscow Shadows, and I found it one of the most useful sources for gaining that deeper understanding of what's going on in Ukraine, which I find incredibly useful. In today's show, I'll be asking Professor Galliotti why Russia has resorted to using an attritional approach, basically to grind Ukrainian defenders down, given the huge costs that attritional warfare often incurs. Such a strategy is completely unlike how a NATO army would choose to fight, for instance. They would preferably use a type of warfare akin to what the British army called the manoeuvrist approach. So I'll be asking Mark whether Russian doctrine before the war was centred on manoeuvre or attritional warfare, and whether we can identify a particular Russian way of war in this or any previous Russian military operation. Given that the West hasn't fought any major conflicts for some time now, the difficulties in manoeuvre warfare, even despite the major technological developments of recent years, needs to be fully understood. And so I think there is much to learn in looking at how these two sides have been fighting this particular war. Anyway, that's far too much from me. So let's hear from Professor Mark Galliotti on the use of attritional and manoeuvre warfare in Ukraine. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you on to discuss uh, the Russian way of war and the methods of fighting that we have so far seen during the current war in Ukraine. I'm a big fan of your podcast In Moscow Shadows, so I'm delighted you could take the time to join me today. I'm very glad I could. Before we start to talk about how Russia has been fighting this war, I wondered if you could give us a basic overview of some of the key terms here. What is the difference between what the British Army refers to as the manoeuvrist approach and attritional warfare, which is a term frequently used to describe the fighting currently taking place in Ukraine? Sure. Um, I must say, I, I hate that word, manoeuvrist. But there you go. Look, I mean, these are not straightforward sort of binary even if they're sometimes presented as such, because you manoeuvre to put your enemy in a position where you can force attrition upon them. And likewise, you use attrition to basically prevent the enemy from being able to, to manoeuvre properly. But very, very simply put, I mean, manoeuvre warfare is emphasising speed, flexibility. The idea is that, that by whether it's outflanking or breaking supply chains or whatever, you degrade the enemy's will and capacity to fight, because that's really what it's all about. I mean, outside video games, you don't win just by killing all, all the enemies. Whereas attritional warfare depends much more on firepower and mass. 
essentially it's about grinding away at the enemy and again to to degrade their their, their capacity to keep fighting but essentially you know it, it is the, these two approaches and inevitably you will switch from one to the other no war is fought in one way or the other in entirely there'll be points where you can actually maneuver and there are other points where you just simply sit down and, and, and grind away but it's a question of in a way where where you put the emphasis and you know most western armies these days put the emphasis on maneuver because it basically allows them to make best use of the kind of strengths that they will tend to bring to the battlefield compared to their antagonist. In other words, precisely that they will usually have a much better intelligence picture of the, the battlefield. They'll usually be able to have air cover and air power on the, at their disposal. And also, frankly, Western armies will tend to be on the smaller side of things. So again, you need to use your force multipliers to make sure that you make the best use of your soldiers. Um, but again, I mean, as we'll we'll see when we start talking about what, what the war in Ukraine, up to now the West maybe has sort of had things its own way, but uh, it may, can't guarantee that you can get to determine that this is will be a, a maneuver war. I think that was a really useful description there of the two terms because I think you're right. The two are often used uh, at different points in a battle or in a campaign or in a war. Mm-hmm. The trenches in World War One, the sort of the classic attritional conflict, that was a case in which you know, everyone was trying desperately. The point is everyone was trying desperately to break out of attritional warfare. That was the point, whether it was the sort of totally quixotic cavalry charges or the use of the tank later. That thing is, well, if only we can break through the enemy trench line, then we can get on to a manoeuvre operation instead. So, you know, even in that, the most attritional of conflicts... Everyone was dreaming of manoeuvre. I find it hard to believe that any military would want to fight in an attritional way because it just doesn't really make sense. It's not an efficient or effective way necessarily of waging war unless there are certain political or operational circumstances force you to use an attritional strategy. Now, with that in mind, I'd like to talk about how Russia has fought its previous wars. And there's no one really better to talk to about this subject. You've written extensively about Russia's former wars, ranging from the Soviet war in Afghanistan to Putin's war in Chechnya. So can you identify a particular Russian way of war in these conflicts? Is there a particular way that Russia chooses to employ military force? There is. Um, You know, one has to be careful because on the one hand, you can be reductionist one way and just want to say, look, technology and just the, the realities of demographics and economics and so forth define way of war. And then the others, which makes it all cultural. And, you know, Ivan has a very different approach from G.I. Joe. You know, in in, in practice, again, I'm being very pedantically academic here, alas. But, you know, in in, in practice, one has to accept there's always going to be commonalities. But yes, I think we, we can see a Russian way of war. But the important thing is this. It's evolving. Some people come up with these kind of crass generalizations of, oh, oh, well, you know, the Russians are willing to take casualties regardless. Well, yes, any authoritarian regime can get away with taking a lot more casualties because they can suppress the information or they can suppress people who protest and they can force people into these uh, conflicts. But even then, there's a limit to how far they can go, not least because it's just not efficient to use all your soldiers as human ammunition. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, broadly speaking, you know, Russia has, you might say, its its way of war has been to be willing to fall back on attritional warfare much more quickly than, for example, we would in the West, simply because, firstly, this is a huge country. 
this can actually trade space for time much more readily than, for example, little Western countries could in, in, in time of war, um, which gives it the opportunity precisely to sort of to, to move industries and build up industries and such like. And in some ways, what we're seeing now, um, it also is obviously more more able and willing to take casualties for the very reason that you know it has, with a possible exception of a few years in the 1990s, essentially never been a democracy. We're just simply talking about shades of authoritarianism. And also, one of the great challenges of, of the Russians is precisely that they will often be fighting technologically superior enemies. But what we've seen, you might say, if you look over time, there's always been this desire to, where possible, shift to maneuver operations, because even the Russians, they don't want to get caught in these kind of meat grinders. And this goes back to Soviet times. One can look at actually the sort of the, the Soviet use of first cavalry and then our, um, and then armored forces in, in, in World War II. We can look at the I mean, extraordinary sort of concept of the operational maneuver group in late Soviet times, which is basically this kind of army corps level force which was precisely intended to kind of blitzkrieg its way, punch through NATO lines, and then essentially shatter NATO's capacity to fight by breaking the supply lines, taking headquarters and everything else. And, and since then, in, in, in post-Soviet times, you know, one, one of the other key differences is obviously not just that the Russian Federation is a lot smaller than the Soviet Union, particularly in terms of population, it's also poorer. Um, and although it had a certain technological edge, again, it had to think in terms of trying to fight wars that were shorter and and less less bloody. So, you know, we saw particularly since the 2008 Georgian War, uh, reforming Russian military, which was increasingly, to be perfectly honest, looking more and more Western. It was orienting itself towards short snap intervention operations in neighboring countries carried out by relatively few but relatively professional forces with the full panoply of air power drones, etc. Et um, and I mean, in some ways, this was the irony. They were moving away from big wars and then ended up fighting a big war. Uh, arguably, they, they might have been in a much better position if they'd never reformed in the first place. Exactly. Militaries will always be equipped and organized and structured and prepared in a certain way and therefore they will always be better suited to certain types of conflict right so that then if politicians force them into a war in which they are unprepared that's going to be a difficult scenario to operate in you can only fight the war that you're prepared for right well you'd like to but again in, in, in this case this is precisely what happened is that and, and look this has happened before after Afghanistan, Soviet war in Afghanistan, 10 years. And at first, when they rolled in, they were completely unprepared because basically this was an army that was built for mass mechanized warfare on the plains of Northern Europe or maybe Northern China, but they didn't want to talk about that. And it found itself in a nasty, gritty counterinsurgency campaign in the mountains against you know, highly motivated and frankly, very tough rebels. And bit by bit, they learned all kinds of lessons over that period of 10 years. You know, they, we, ha we have to recognize that the Soviets and other Russians, they do learn. They may not, they may learn in a sort of different way from us, but they do learn. But the point is, when they finally pulled out of Afghanistan, there was a very deliberate decision that was made. Look, we are not going to be end up fighting wars like this anymore. You know, our political leadership leaders are not going to be so stupid 
as to send us into another Afghan war. We still have to orient ourselves for the big war, and therefore we will actually deliberately forget many of the lessons that the 40th Army, the Russian operational force in Afghanistan, had learned. Of course, then what happened is they ended up going into Chechnya, a mountainous region of southern Russian Federation, fighting highly able, very determined rebels, etc. I mean, so they had to reinvent the wheel painfully. But I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it's it's actually that that you you, know, you develop militaries, which takes a long time. I mean, it's not just simply about thinking, oh, well, let's have a new military doctrine. You know, everything. You know, whether it's your your personnel policy, your training, your procurement. You know, if you decide you need a new kind of tank or new kind of plane, I mean, this doesn't happen in months or years. It happens in decades. Um, and so, and so you guess at the wars that you think you're going to be fighting ten, twenty years out. And you build your army for that. And then those damn politicians pull something else on you. So you mentioned that the Russian army, the Russian military were learning, they were evolving. Does that mean before the war in Ukraine, they had some sort of doctrinal approach that wasn't too dissimilar from what we might expect in a NATO military? Yes, I think, look, they they have, again, the Russians have a very intellectual approach to warfare. Um, vast numbers of astonishingly turgid military journals and the like, and also, you know, uh, from from the very you know very beginning, they, they've had this notion of a military doctrine that drives everything else, and they had a sort of a, a categorization of types of war, you know, all the way up to 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 big wars. So they spoke at least in terms of maintaining a full spectrum capability for every single kind of war. However, if you look at the changes that were taking place. The very fact that they are trying to move more towards a professional army rather than a conscript army. Because the thing about conscripts is, you know, conscripts may or may not be good soldiers. But the main thing is you have a constant churn of conscripts serving one year, one and a half years, two years, whatever. So that that way you'll have a huge reserve mobilization base. But again, if you are in a mass war, you can say, right, we need five million soldiers and we, we're, we're going to raise them. So, you know, that kind of system was beginning to collapse. So in practice, although on, on paper, the Russians were still orienting towards all kinds of wars. In practice, yeah, they were increasingly heading in a Western-type direction. Would it be fair to characterise Russia's early operations as uh, an attempt to use something like the manoeuvrist approach and avoid an attritional strategy? I'm thinking of the attack against Hostomel Airport, for instance. You know, we saw the VDV, the Russian airborne troops, launch a swift attack against uh, a vulnerability, a Ukrainian vulnerability, in an attempt to cause confusion and disorder um, amongst the Ukrainian ranks. So did Russia's early operations against Ukraine show a preference towards manoeuvre operations rather than employing an attritional approach right from the outset of the campaign? Yeah, of course, here the problem is when we say Russia, who are we talking about? Because in some ways, we have the military, the high command, and the political leadership, Putin. Remember, Putin had convinced himself, it seems, and certainly none of the kind of yes-men and cronies in his immediate circle were willing to disagree with him, that Ukraine, which he doesn't think is a real country, the Ukrainians are not a real people, that they wouldn't really fight. That in some ways, this would actually be more of a police action than anything else. And this is one of the reasons why so many of the initial force were not actually soldiers, but members of the, the National Guard, which is an internal security, gendarme type force. Then, of course, the military have to, at very short notice, because really, I mean, the, the orders were only sort of really, truly sort of cut a week, two weeks out. 
you know, at very short notice, have to operationalize that. And absolutely, the response they went for is precisely sort of classic maneuver warfare. Um, take the airport at Hostomel, use that to bring in more paratroopers, the sort of things that they'd done in Kabul in 1979 and, and since. And at the same time, send forces quickly sort of striking in towards Kiev with the aim of a decapitating strike that either takes out the Ukrainian leadership or forces it to flee, that breaks the uh, chain of command. You know, the idea is that you want people, you know, none of the individual units really know what they should be doing and such like. At the same time, you you activate your your sleeper agents and so forth. I mean, again, that that's the the, the vision. It didn't work. But I think what's interesting is that the more we learn about those early days, the more it was actually a bit of a toss of the coin. Hostomel could easily have fallen in the way the Russians intended um, if the Russian forces, which had been pushing towards Kiev, had been more willing to take casualties, which is usually how they would operate. But again, I think you know, the point was, firstly, they originally, you know, two weeks before, they hadn't thought they were going to be going into Ukraine. Then they're told they're going into Ukraine, but basically it's not actually going to be a fight. So take your parade uniforms because you'll you'll be needing them for, for display in, in Kiev. And then suddenly you come across actually very stubborn, determined resistance. Well, if they'd actually thought, well, we're going to take losses, but so be it. We push on. Well, again, the people I've spoken to, you know, both Ukrainian and Western officers actually are saying, they could well have taken Kiev. Now, of course, that wouldn't have meant that the whole country would have fallen or anything like that. But actually, in hindsight, this was a, a maneuver operation which could have been a lot more successful. This is the other thing about maneuver operations. In some ways, they are much more gambles. Um, they rely on you being faster, smarter, more professional than the other side, rather than just simply being able to throw more weight of artillery at the, at the other side. And yeah, once that had happened, the failure of this initial strike. And also in the process, the Russians lost so many of their best troops. I mean, I think, again, this is one of the, the, the untold stories, the decimation of, for example, these Spetsnaz special forces, whose role is precisely to be the, the very sharp point of the spear. The paratroopers, again, suffered terrible losses. Again, these, these would be the key figures in maneuver operations because they tend to be used as light infantry. Um, but once you've also lost these guys and you're relying on less well-equipped, but more to the point, less professional soldiers, you can't really use them in the same way. And so, yes, this ended up becoming an attritional campaign, even though certainly the high command hadn't wanted that. You gave us one explanation there as to why Russia ended up fighting in a more attritional way. You told us how relatively early on in the campaign, Russia lost many of its best units, or at least it, the Ukrainians depleted the ranks of the best trained Russian units. And so that meant that they were unable to exploit breaches or breakthroughs and utilise manoeuvre warfare effectively. I wonder whether there's also another explanation here. My image of the Russian army, and forgive me if this is a bit of a stereotype, is that they are fairly traditional, fairly conservative, small c, and are very much a hierarchical structure. And therefore, they don't utilise mission command to the same extent that a NATO military would do. Am I right in thinking, for instance, that the Russian army don't even have an NCO corps, or at least the majority of Russian units don't have an NCO corps? And of course, non-commissioned officers are essential for their experience and their knowledge of the troops. 
And those things are crucial if you want to utilize maneuver warfare. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. And again, I think it's something that the Russians themselves had really sort of had come to appreciate. And they were trying to begin to create something like an NCO core. But the whole point about an NCO core is that these people are not just simply people who've just come out of a training establishment, but that they've got the years of experience, which gives them the authority as well as the knowledge um, to, to be able to operate. And no, at the moment, there isn't that. You have, therefore, you know, a lot of pressure, frankly, being put on junior officers who are having to do everything from lead their forces to actually you know, handling a lot of the admin to, in a way, understanding how their troops think. And, you know, these may well be 25-year-olds, um, you know, who, if that, um, who suddenly find themselves in charge of a platoon or even a company, you know, depending on on, on the attrition of, of, of the uh, chain of command. But that is an issue. Mission command, likewise. And again, the interesting thing is this. Because of the reform which had been taking place within the military, in some ways, what Russia had was two armies, not one, or two armed forces. Um, a minority of relatively elite, and I don't, when I say elite, I'm not necessarily talking about absolute, you know, SAS types, but nonetheless, you know, definitely a cut above the rest, even some of the regular motor rifle, in other words, mechanized forces, relatively elite with a higher proportion of professionals who actually could do the job quite well. And we saw this with, in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea which is an absolutely textbook special forces operation in which scarcely a shot was fired, even though at first the Russians were distinctly outnumbered by the Ukrainian defenders, precisely because of maneuver warfare, that they moved fast before the Ukrainians were fully aware of what was going on. They were basically bottled up in their bases. The um, communications were often disrupted. You know, basically the Russians and that did everything right. So they, they had that capability, but then you've also got the bulk of the forces that were still relatively unreformed. Because, you know, if you're a smart, effective, juniorish officer and you're thinking of your next posting, clearly, if you can, you want to go to one of the good units. And so what happened is we ended up with kind of cannibalization of the officer corps. So a small number had a disproportion of, of the good guys and the let's be charitable, not necessarily best guys, um, end, up, end up in the rest. The good units were chewed through in those early weeks and months of the military operation and leaving Russia with rather less effective ones. And here, this is where the mission command factor comes in, because you're absolutely right, it's not a natural Russian thing. The Russian approach in the past has been more to think of war as chess, that essentially you have one brain, so the, the grand master behind the board, who has a picture of the whole board and a picture of the strategy. And the last thing you want, if you have some cunning plan, which is going to mean checkmate in eight moves, for one of your pawns to say, actually, that square over there looks quite good. So the whole point was precisely very hierarchical, very top down. But again, that had begun to break down because of the need to sort of create this new kind of military. So you still had, shall we say, 20% mission command, 80% hierarchical, and that doesn't work, you know, frankly, in, in, in either way. And the final point about mission command is it only works if the officers on the ground know what the hell they're meant to be doing. And one of the key things we saw about this conflict is precisely the degree to which people were being thrown in there. Not only did they not understand what the hell they were meant to be doing, or fighting Nazis in Ukraine, what on earth is that, but also uh, on a very operational level. They might have a sense of get that building, 
but a wider sense of where that fits in the battlefield, no, they, they weren't being given that. So in a way, even if they, they had the, the smarts and the will and the initiative to act, they didn't know what they were meant to be doing. So does that mean that Russia's difficulty to execute manoeuvre warfare can also be attributed to uh, poor leadership or a lack of training? It's not that they were badly trained, but in some ways they were well trained in the wrong thing. I mean, the Russians have a very um, algorithmic approach to warfare. You know, if over a one kilometre line of front, you need this many mines in the defence and this many artillery pieces in the attack offence or, or whatever. Um, you know, the, the point was that these were people who, who were trained in, shall we say, the technical skills of the job. But it doesn't matter, you know, and, unless they have a good sense of their own units, a good sense of what this mission is all about, it's going to be very, very hard for them to, to do more than just simply demonstrate the immediate tactical skill. So given the challenges that the Russian army faced at the start of this conflict, how soon did they begin to fight in a more attritional way? Can we identify, can we observe a notable shift in how the Russians fought? And can we identify a point at which they started to fight more of an attritional campaign than attempt manoeuvre operations? Yeah, this is this is the problem. I mean, one can see, for example, uh, after the failure of Hostomil, there was this kind of bizarre attempt to drive a column down towards Kiev, um, which very quickly bogged down thanks to Ukrainian artillery and anti-tank weapons. And in some ways, that was attritional in that at first it was an attempt to use mass to bull through the defence rather than any kind of finesse, any kind of manoeuvre, because it was basically just trundling down a road. Um, I mean, whether that was attritional warfare or just a kind of bizarre farce is a whole separate question. But you must say, after that failure of the initial attempt to try and take Kiev in a lightning strike, that's when we saw the Russians belatedly reorient towards trying to essentially move out from the occupied areas of the Donbass in southeastern Ukraine and also out of Crimea. And again, you know, what we tend to see is at first they try to carry out a maneuver operation, seeing how far they, they can use speed. But the point is, by that point, as I said, they, their forces were not necessarily always the best. I mean, they still have lots of paratroopers and such like, so we don't want to overplay that. The Ukrainians have obviously got their forces essentially were in the south and east of the country because those were where the Russians were beforehand. Um, and, you know, it quite quickly bogs down. And again, I think this is it. it. Attrition is not initially a strategy. It is just what happens on the battlefield. And then the Russians and to a degree the Ukrainians simply adapt to the reality of the war. To what extent does having superior technology give you the opportunity to fight in a more manoeuvrist way? You know, neither side has air superiority over the battlefield in Ukraine. And I wonder whether that is a determining factor in shaping how militaries fight. Air power is, after all, a vital tool in helping you create that breach or breakthrough, which ground forces can then exploit. Um, there, there is an element of that. And, and funny, and one of the still mysterious elements of this war is why the Russian Air Force has not been a lot more aggressive and active. And yes, it would take a lot more casualties in the process, but especially in the early stages of the war, why they didn't blow every bridge, bomb every airfield, suppress every air defense location. I mean, that's, again, if, if one goes back to 
Russian doctrine, I mean, the way this war ought to have been fought is that as part of the initial stage is there would have been what the Russians call a morale, mass uh, rocket aviation strike, in which exactly you basically devastate everything that you need to, especially including suppressing air defense. There was a bit of a strike, but it was very half-hearted, again, because I think Putin thought, well, look, if you're going to take over Ukraine, why smash so much of the real estate that you're going to own? Another catastrophic blunder proving that essentially Putin was the Ukrainian secret weapon. So, you know, since then, Russian aviation has been present, but it's certainly exactly, I mean, has, has, not, has not been dominant. I think there, there is an element of that, certainly if one looks at NATO doctrine. I mean, you know, NATO where war is always predicated on not just information superiority, but also air superiority. Um, the Russians all the, and, and the Ukrainians, neither of them have got that. And frankly, F-16s are not going to change that. So I think that's true. But look, uh, maneuver warfare is not just simply about who has more planes. I mean, the interesting thing is this, this is the first war that we're seeing the, the true capacity of drones in massed peer-to-peer combat. Again, up to now, drones have been sort of part of the, the magic weapon that the West can, can deploy against people who don't really have drones. Here, we actually have both sides using them really quite aggressively. You've got kamikaze drones, you've got spotting drones, and, and, and so forth. Um, we're beginning to even see drone versus drone sort of conflict. Uh, and, uh, and again, what, what tends to happen is it's part of this sort of the pendulum swing of technologies is, you know, at first you get this devastating advantage, but then everyone adapts to it. Um, and, you know, you're back to the drawing board and looking for something else. So I, I don't think, it, I mean, obviously, look, if, if either, you know, if, if the Russians have been willing to use their air power a lot more, or if the Ukrainians had a lot more air power, clearly that would have an effect. And it might well punch holes. But at the same time, air power can be, can be used to actually... Um, deter and disrupt maneuver operations, because precisely, you know, the other side can't necessarily risk moving and can't mass without you spotting it and so forth. So I, I think that we have to recognize the degree to which actually, I, well, this is just my own um, totally amateurish perspective, but I think Western notions of air power always had encoded within them an assumption of superiority. Of, of basically dominating the skies, not just having an advantage in the skies. And I think what's clear is that actually against a major peer sort of competitor, you cannot count on that. Absolutely. That is one very important lesson that is becoming increasingly clear throughout this particular conflict. Now, I'd like to address an earlier point that you made regarding attrition and manoeuvre and the fact that these terms aren't necessarily binary. It's not as if we can say, any particular war or any particular operation is either attritional or manoeuvrist. And so by that logic, it would be unfair to characterise this current war as either an attritional campaign or as a manoeuvrist operation. So have there been any other examples of manoeuvrist warfare? Clearly, there are a number of operations that are very much attritional in their nature. Bakhmut stands out in my mind as the sort of quintessential attritional operation. But have there been any other examples of maneuver warfare? On the part of the Russians, no. I mean, we can see it on the part of the Ukrainians with the September, October last year, um, Kharkiv offensive, where the Russians were 
essentially induced to move all their reserves down to the south and dramatically deplete their forces up in the sort of north northeast of, of Ukraine, allowing the Ukrainians to to make a sort of a, you know a massive strike. The Russians haven't really had that opportunity, and part of that is look. I, I honestly don't think they actually at the moment have any meaningful offensive capability. Sure, they can and they are doing all kinds of local counterattacks, you know, as part of an active defense against the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But the capacity to actually launch, uh, you know, a, a, a major offensive, I think that really they squandered that capacity in the winter with a, a very, frankly, pointless counteroffensive. Uh, counter counter offensive um and also in 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 bakhmut and and now they they just don't have it in them so in some ways it's because of both the military realities but also the political realities i think putin's accepted that he's not going to win this war on the battlefield now he wins by not losing he hopes that if he can just kind of hang on in due course the ukrainians who let's be honest they have lost fewer men than the Russians. But proportionate to population, Russia has a population of more than three times the Ukraine's, you know, proportionately the Ukrainians are taking greater losses. So, you know, there is a hope that at a certain point Ukraine cannot or will not fight, or more to the point that the West is no longer willing to spend the billions of pounds, dollars and euros that go to Ukraine every month. Um, so in, in that respect, actually, you know, I think we, we sometimes forget that the battlefield is both a reflection of the political environment as well as a, a constraint on political decisions. And if now the decision, I mean, look, obviously, if there was a sudden opportunity to take some other Ukrainian city, the Russians would probably go for it. The Ukrainians are not stupid enough to give them the opportunity, and the Russian forces at the moment are just not up to it. So given the context that you've just outlined there, for the Russians, an attritional campaign is probably desirable at this point in, in the sense that they have the capacity to outlast them. They don't have the capacity to launch major offensives. And so it, it now becomes about grinding the other side down through a protracted and uh, attritional campaign. Yeah, and denying the Ukrainians the opportunity for manoeuvre operations. I mean, again, this, this was a sort of terrible blunder last year. And I think, again... You know, the Russians do learn some lessons. Um, it's very clear. I mean, the very fact that they spent so much time building these sort of massive and extensive defenses, the, the minefields, the tank traps, the trenches and such like, um, you know, it is, again, to try and not freeze the conflict in a political sense, but to basically, as you say, turn this into an attritional slog. Now, again, it's not just about population size. It's also about industrial capacity do you have enough shells enough bullets and so forth do you have a, a populace that is willing to continue to send its its sons and husbands into the front line and and, and so forth you know this is a war that is not just being fought on the battlefield but there is also an economic and political war being fought between the west and and, and russia with sanctions and such like so you know it's, it's all a much a much larger conflict but yeah essentially you're absolutely right from the russians point of view it may not be sort of guaranteed, but their best chance is precisely to keep this attritional and rely on the fact that their industrial capacity and above all their population should allow them to outlast the Ukrainians, they hope. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Ukrainian offensive in Kharkiv. What factors contributed to their success there? How were they able to pull off this manoeuvre operation in a way that the Russians hadn't been able to really do? 
I think it's, I mean, it's a combination of factors. Um, one is precisely that um, I think the Ukrainians have demonstrated their capacity not just to often outfight, but also outthink the Russians. Um, now, some people think that because at this time, at the same time as the Kharkiv operation, um, there was also the Kherson operation, um, which was right down in, in the south, you know, the one regional capital, the city that the Russians had taken. And the Ukrainians were, were, were basically besieging it, in effect, not physically you know, in, in medieval terms, but in terms of by, by basically bringing all its supply lines under fire control and essentially reaching the point where the Russians appreciated that their control of the city was untenable. But the point is, because the Ukrainians were pushing there and because the city of Kherson, as the only regional capital had been taken, was politically important, and thus Putin did not want to let go. I mean, for weeks, if not months, his generals were saying, look, you need to let us pull back. But no, Putin wasn't willing to do that. It's always worth remembering, this is a man who is the commander-in-chief, but also has no meaningful military experience at all. Um, but what that meant was precisely that the Russians themselves opened the way. They moved so many of their forces, their reserves, from the north down to, to Kherson, that they basically opened up and you actually had, you know, very small garrisons around, many of which were actually National Guard rather than regular military, um, who really were not able to, to put up much of a, of, of a defense. And once the maneuver operation started, and again, I think because the Ukrainians have interior lines of communication, they can actually move their forces around much more quickly and easily. And they also have a massive intelligence advantage because the West, particularly the United States and the UK, you know, are able through everything from satellites to communications intercepts to give them a very, very clear picture of the battlefield. But, you know, once the Ukrainians realize that this was an opportunity and, and could move, you end up with something of a cascade because small Russian forces that realize they're about to be outflanked, if not encircled, it's not necessarily out of cowardice or anything. It just makes sense to bug the hell out. Um, and, and what that tends to do is precisely create a cascading effect as everyone sort of pulls back. So in, in, in some ways, this was, I mean, I certainly couldn't say a bloodless operation, but because the, the Russians had actually missed that that flank was, was vulnerable, because the Ukrainians could concentrate their forces more, more quickly. Again, a lot of the art of war is... You know, how effectively can you disperse your forces to cover large areas? And then how quickly can you reconsolidate them to take advantage of opportunities? Well, the Ukrainians were much, because of their interior lines of communication, were much quicker at basically regathering their forces and, and striking there. The thing is that, again, the Russians have learned that lesson. What we have seen is not just from the use of static defenses, but also in terms of actually how they move the forces around. They are very careful these days not to provide any such open doors for the Ukrainians to push on. So the Russians did absolutely learn from the Ukrainian Kharkiv offensive. And they are now, unfortunately for the Ukrainians, well dug in. They have a strong defensive line. Does a good defense mean that maneuver warfare is incredibly hard to prosecute? And therefore, will it always lead to attritional strategies being forced upon both sides? I mean, a solid defense is very, very hard to, to break through. But I, I have a tendency to think of this almost like where dam breaks, that cracks form and slowly spread. But then when the dam breaks, it breaks. And I think this is what we're, we're seeing, certainly the Ukrainians trying to do currently on the southern front in, in, in Zaporizhia. 
you know, they're facing what are essentially triple Russian defensive lines. They've broken through the, certainly the first one already. They're assailing the second, again, depending on quite how you sort of define it, they, they might even be beginning to breach that. Their goal is precisely that if they can get through, and precisely as they tend to kind of break through the carapace, what faces them behind is, is usually less formidable because, you know, the Russians put all of their sort of weight at, at the front, particularly in terms of the, the dense, dense, dense minefields that are very hard to, to move through. And what they're doing is wanting to create a breakthrough, which then will allow them to, to use maneuver warfare. And particularly, I mean, again, this is where actually the Western kit, the tanks and the mechanized infantry combat vehicles, which give them that kind of protected mobility, will be so important. I mean, frankly, you know, when it's an attritional slog, the sort of actual practical increment of, say, an Abrams M1A1 over an upgunned Russian T-55 from the 1960s, you know, it's present, but it's vastly less meaningful than when they can actually get out into maneuver operations. Um, so that's what the Ukrainians are hoping for, and that's what the Russians are desperately trying to deny them. So it's not that attritional warfare always becomes the, the default. It's that in some ways, I think we should think of this almost as pulses. You will have a pulse of maneuver operations, which if unless it is able to get so far as to in effect win the war, then at a certain point, the, the offensive will culminate or just generally be, be just blocked. And there will probably be a period of attrition until the next breakthrough can be made. Do you know, I think that's one of the most helpful descriptions of that relationship between attritional and maneuver warfare that I've ever heard. Now, to conclude our discussion about attritional and maneuverist fighting styles being employed in Ukraine, I wonder what you think the main lessons for NATO are from this conflict. Now, obviously, there are many lessons relating to air power, logistics, artillery, force structure and, and whatnot. But in terms of the difficulties of maneuverist warfare and breaking through the attrition, what lessons do you think NATO should be learning there? I mean, I think that the most basic one is that mass still matters. Um, it's all very well relying on exquisite technologies, exquisite being a sort of a euphemism for eye-wateringly expensive, um, you know, and, and, and all this idea that basically if you're smart enough, if you're advanced enough, you can somehow use that as a, a, a magic increment. However, in practice, when a tank brigade is coming your way, it's very nice to have a tank brigade of your own with which to to to, to counter it. Um, again, I, I think that uh, NATO, you know, for understandable reasons, fell prey to two particular uh, delusions post-1991 and the end of the Cold War, or the end of the last Cold War. Um, one was precisely that we could indulge ourselves with the peace dividend and above all, you know, and particularly run down our stocks. You know, we, we live after all in what we can almost think of the, as the Amazon age, that essentially anything you want, you can buy and you can get it shipped overnight with Prime. Um, well, unfortunately, what we've discovered is if you need a million artillery shells, they're not just simply on, on, on the end of, of, of a sort of an internet uh, display just for you to click and purchase. So, you know, we, we, we not only ran down the size of our military and also our sort of uh, stocks of ammunition and the like, we also ran down production capability. 
The second uh, mistake we made was to assume that the wars would all be nice, convenient wars of choice fought safely away in places where, if need be, we can pull out without really having to worry about consequences. You know, if you look at Afghanistan, you know, there was that point where, you know, after a certain point, and I'm, I'm probably terribly caricaturing the opinion, but I think at some point they just began to sort of consider, well, it sucks to be an Afghan. But we want out of this war and we can and we will pull out and it will be embarrassing for, for a little while, but, but no big deal. Well, sometimes war is going to be rather closer to us. Sometimes they're not going to be wars of choice. And sometimes they're going to be places where precisely we cannot trade space for time. And all of this means that therefore, you know, both military establishment sizes and above all the industrial base matters and needs to be present. I mean, you know, there's all these current uh, initiatives in the United States, in the UK, in Europe to you know, rebuild capacity and so forth. In most cases, this will take years. It needs to be done, but in some ways we have to pray to God that it will not be relevant for Ukraine, that the Ukrainian war will not still be raging in three years time. It may be, but you know, we, we can hope not. So that's the kind of the big picture lesson. And I just make one other point, um, which is what's also interesting, I think, is actually the speed with which the Ukrainians have been able to respond to all kinds of opportunities, whether that's in terms of opportunities on the battlefield or whether that's actually opportunities at home. I mean, if one looks at, for example, this huge uh, domestic industry in repurposing commercial drones for military usages and such like. You know what? What is what is really striking is precisely just how how difficult we find it these days to to do anything, frankly, in NATO. You know, how long does it take to develop a new armored vehicle? How many countries have to harmonise their their requirements to produce one new uh, you know, X generation uh, combat aircraft or whatever? Um, wars require a degree of urgency. And I think that's something that we need to almost think about. How can we, you know, without going into the sort of total war mentality that obviously prevailed in something like Second World War, you know, but actually how can we find ways in which we can ensure that we can move a lot more quickly and a lot more nimbly than we can at the moment? Because, you know, it's all very well looking at, at the Ukrainians and complaining that they're not using sort of NATO doctrine as, as you know, as we had from certain anonymous, particularly German sources, um, or indeed looking at the blunders carried out, carried out by the Russians. But I'm not convinced that NATO could fight this war. If this had actually not been being fought conveniently on Ukrainian soil, but if this had actually been a Russian thrust into Poland or Romania, if, if all of a sudden, you know, well, let, let's say if Ukraine had fallen and we're talking three years' time, um, would we have the capacity to mobilize the number of soldiers? I mean, if you, even if one looks at the Russian losses, I mean, basically, if you take the operational force of the, of the German army, they've already lost twice as many as that, and they're still fighting. Um, you know, so I, I think we also need to have a certain degree of humility and actually learn the lessons once again of what our big war looks like. Some really excellent points there. Thank you, Mark. I think it's quite clear that, especially in European countries, turning the tap on to produce artillery shells and weapons and whatnot has been a very slow process. 
This has been a wonderful discussion. You've given us some great insights, Mark, on the current war in Ukraine. Can you tell our listeners where they can find more of your work and keep up to date with what's going on in Ukraine? Well, I mean, I, I have this sort of semi-regular podcast in Moscow Shadows, which is also the name of my, of my blog. And most recently, my, my last book out was Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, which will also be coming out next year in paperback with an additional chapter hurriedly trying to distill some of the lessons of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. Okay, excellent stuff. Thanks again for coming on the show, Mark. It's been a very enjoyable discussion. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did recording it. I was honoured to have Professor Galliotti on the show, and I think he's done a brilliant job in conveying not only Russia's approaches to war, but also the challenges of modern warfare in general that any country may face. So thank you again, Mark, for coming on the show. And thank you to you too for listening. See you next time when we'll be taking a closer look at what the UK is currently up to in space. Goodbye.